Right now, though, we're talking a little bit more about the announcement, which was made to basically tell people if you are traveling, come home to Canada immediately and do not plan any more travel in the foreseeable future. If you do, you are going to be facing a big bill to quarantine at a government-sanctioned hotel. And if you do test positive for COVID-19, you will then carry out the rest of your quarantine in a government facility. But are people getting caught up in these new rules? Does there need to be perhaps an exemption for some people? My next guest has written about this and Christine Van Gein is joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I should mention as well, you are the uh, litigation director for uh, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which is a legal charity advocating for the constitutional rights of Canadians. So what are your thoughts about this announcement and the new measures coming in? Yeah, I have I have a bunch of broad concerns. We we haven't seen the final form of the order, so we don't know what the exemptions will look like. But the government certainly needs to provide some exemptions. This implicates some of our most fundamental rights, the right to enter and remain in Canada, the right to be free from arbitrary detention, the right to liberty, you know, just to walk around without being um, obstructed. Now, the government can put limits on our rights, but those limits need to be justified. So I have been inundated with emails over the past 72 hours from people who have been sort of caught up in these. No one really feels bad about the people who have traveled to all-inclusive resorts or, um, you know, the Ontario finance minister who went to St. Bart's for vacation. But we're talking about people, you know, I've, I've been contacted by people who have surgeries in the United States because their surgeries have either been delayed significantly in Canada or their specialized surgeries that aren't available in Canada. I've been contacted by the parents of young children who get treatment for severe anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergy. Um, in the United States, this treatment's only available um, for a very narrow age window for children, and it needs to be done regularly, and it can't be done in Canada. Now, you Try telling the mother of a child with severe anaphylaxis, you know, you're going to be put in a government facility and served government food for, for three days and you can't leave. And that puts their child's life at risk. And those are those people need to be accommodated. And right now we don't know um, if they will be under the regs, under, under the proposed order. There were some questions about this as well. I know we covered a story about a Manitoba couple as well. They had doctor's appointments in the United States. They had been traveling to the United States for different treatments, and they were concerned about the exemptions or lack of exemptions as well. Did you get any indication or have you been given any indication that we will get more clarity on possible exemptions? The government has said that there will be some narrow exemptions. I have written to the Minister of Transport and the Minister of Health to ask specifically about exemptions for people with medical needs or disabilities, because I have a very urgent concern about those individuals. But I do have also broader concerns about the constitutionality of these measures, you know, as a whole. There are a lot of people who travel for compassionate reasons, um, for example, to visit a loved one in the U.S. who's undergoing chemotherapy. Um, I've been written to by people who want to travel to support their their partner or relative while they're getting treatment. I've been written by to by people who are going to the funerals of uh, parents or children in the United States or abroad, and 
you know, now attending a funeral for your own child or parent could cost you an additional $2,000 per person. And that's a that's a violation of your right to enter Canada because it's prohibitively expensive. You know, a lot of people don't have $2,000 to, to spend on that. And the question is, is that limit justified when these people could otherwise quarantine at home um, if they live alone and they could just take the test, the, take a test on departure, take a test on arrival, and then quarantine alone at home? Is the government going too far by requiring these individuals to quarantine at a government facility? In my view, I think that the balance might be off here. I think the government may be going too far, especially with these compassionate cases. What about the fact that other countries are doing that and in other cases, such as, say, the United Kingdom, where I think it's 10 days in a government hotel? There are examples of this being done elsewhere because of the pandemic. I'm not sure about the UK, but I know that in Australia and New Zealand, they imposed similar measures. But my understanding is that the cost was not um, not as high as it is in Canada. I think I think in Canada is proposed two thousand dollars for three days at this hotel. I think it was less than that for 14 days at a hotel in um, in New Zealand or Australia. The, a part of the issue is the cost here. That's what a lot of people have written to me about. They're not necessarily... Some people are really concerned about quarantining at a government facility, especially if the facility can't meet their special needs. But for a lot of people, it's, it's just the cost. You know, if you're in a cross-border marriage, which is not uncommon, people think it's uncommon and it is not. There are a lot of people who have a spouse who lives on the other side of the border. And now that marriage comes with an additional $2,000 price tag when it was already a very challenging situation during COVID. But what about the flip side and the reason for this in that it's not like the government just woke up one day and decided to do this. They're doing this because of the variants and because uh, they're saying that it's necessary to keep this virus or perhaps a more uh, contagious form of the virus from coming into Canada. Look, I understand the need for the government to impose health measures. Uh, The question is just, are these health measures going a, a little too far? And I think if you combine all of these existing requirements, like the test on departure, the test on arrival, rapid testing, um, and quarantining alone in your home, requiring them to quarantine at a government facility may be a bridge too far. So I'm not saying that the government can't take measures to protect the population's health from this virus. I'm saying that this particular measure may be uh, maybe too far. And, and you know, with respect to the variant, the government has already failed to keep the variant out of the country. It's already here. Well, and does that come into the argument as well, that even with these uh, pretty uh, intense measures that were announced, uh, we still know, and it was even reiterated that day, that travel at this point, the numbers show, uh, accounts for about 2% of the infections. So it's not as though all of the infection is coming uh, from travel. Does, it, does that become part of the argument as well? Yeah, I think part of the argument is that, you know, when you're when you're judging whether or not a limit on your right is justified, whether these limits on our rights is justified, you have to look at the whole situation. You have to say, you know, is there a rational connection between stopping stopping travel this particular way and achieving the goal of stopping the spread of the virus? And if 
travel is responsible for a very, very small portion of the spread, you know, you, it raises questions about the existence of a rational connection. I do think at the end of the day, the courts may may make the decision that there is a rational connection in this case, because even 2% when you're talking about the variant, um, you know, that they may think that that's quite relevant. But when you combine all of these other measures, I think that the quarantine in a government facility is not minimally impairing. I think that they could take less of a sledgehammer approach and allow people to have more more customized quarantine plans. Uh, so do you see it then, you would like to see it play out that if somebody falls under one of the categories that you said, so it's medical treatments or surgery or, or something like that, that they perhaps could have a different quarantine plan than somebody who chooses to go on a sun destination vacation? I think that that's something that the government really needs to look seriously at, especially especially people who need medical accommodations. I think they absolutely need to be exempt from this requirement. But then I think the government also should consider exemptions for compassionate reasons, like traveling for a funeral or to take care of a loved one, um, for cross-border relationships, for people who have cross-border jobs, for international students, for people who work in foreign aid, um, for people who traveled to get a vaccine that the federal government in Canada has failed to procure. How is, the, how is this quarantine facility going to treat people who are vaccinated against the virus? Is there a rational connection between confining vaccinated people and stopping the spread of the virus? I'm not sure if there is, especially if those individuals have very little, if any, ability to spread COVID. All right. uh, We'll leave it there for today. Christine, thanks for joining us. We'll be following uh, up and seeing what happens uh, with this. But thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for being with us. Well, a new study is underway. It is going to examine the impact COVID-19 is having on paramedics in this province. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Brian Grinnell, UBC Faculty of Medicine, also an assistant professor of, in the Department of Emergency Medicine and a scientist at the Centre for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello, it's nice to chat with you. Uh, Great to have you on the program. I should mention we are also joined by Jenny Helmer, who is a paramedic and has agreed to join the conversation. Thanks to you as well for being here. Hi, Jill. Thank you very much. Hi, Brian. Hello. Uh, Brian, I'll start with you. What exactly are you looking at as far as the impacts uh, the virus, the pandemic is having on paramedics? So we're looking at a number of different data points. Uh, For one, we are going to enroll hopefully about 5,000 paramedics in BC and Ontario. And participating paramedics will, on three occasions, provide provide blood samples and also fill out a survey. Uh, The blood sample will be used to determine if there's antibodies to the virus which causes COVID-19. And we'll track those antibodies initially and then also at the 6 and 12 months marks. Uh, We're also going to obtain survey data at those time periods as well to determine what kind of procedures and protocols paramedics have been implementing during those time periods and whether they've developed COVID-19. We hope that these these data will be able to help us with determining what the occupational risks are to paramedics uh, and to develop recommendations from our data. So you very well could find a number of paramedics who have had the virus and maybe didn't even know. Yeah, that's totally correct. You know, when I think over the last year when people have had severe illnesses, they've thought, 
that they should get tested for COVID. However, as you probably know from other studies that have gone on, a good chunk of patients with COVID-19 may may be asymptomatic or may have just mild symptoms with their disease. So it's hard to know. I think everyone's thought that to themselves. Would they had a little bit of a runny nose or a sore throat? Maybe I would. Maybe I had COVID a month ago or or uh, or a year ago. So by doing serology, looking for antibodies to the virus which causes COVID-19, we'll be able to tell more conclusively and comprehensively what how many paramedics actually had COVID-19 infections. Uh, Jenny, I'll bring you in on the conversation as well. I mean, being a paramedic can be stressful in the best of times. How has it been being a paramedic during the pandemic? I think you put that really well, Jill, that um, even in normal times, it's a stressful job. Uh, Paramedics are operating in uncontrolled and chaotic environments in, in normal circumstances. And they go into homes, they enter into cars and ditches, on bridges, on water, up mountains, anywhere that 911 is called paramedics go. And with the pandemic, it's added an extra layer to, uh, quite honestly, the, the, the stress that paramedics are under. Uh, and of course, they're, they're working often in close proximity to patients that do have COVID-19, um, which adds to the stress level as well. And at the end of the day, paramedics have done so well and been so vigilant about, you know, wearing the appropriate PPE and protecting themselves, their families, their patients, and the other healthcare workers. But it is really a a different, a different environment right now. And it's gone on for a year. So I think um, to speak more broadly, paramedics, um, although they've done so well, they are They are tired, and it's been a big load on them. And Dr. Grinnell, so will this look specifically at the science of whether or not, or I guess how many paramedics have had the virus, how what the the risk is like in that sense, will it also look at the the stress and the mental stress? Yeah, on on both those those factors. Um, So we will look at, the number of paramedics that tested positive for COVID, and then we'll look at factors which may have increased or decreased the risk of infection within the workplace. And then in addition, as you mentioned, we're going to be looking at how and to what degree COVID, the COVID pandemic has affected the stress levels and mental health among paramedics. And Jenny knows this better than I, than I do, uh, but it's been a very stressful time for all medical practitioners during the COVID pandemic. Uh, and these, this is really worn down on front frontline healthcare workers. And so we're going to be asking paramedics about these important questions within the surveys that will be uh, three times over the one-year period in terms of how their stress level has increased and the additional burden that the COVID-19 pandemic has placed on their occupational and personal lives. And Jenny, going on that, do you think that, or can you talk a bit about the fact that we, we talked about that it is a stressful job? When I first saw this, I thought too, uh, we've talked to paramedics in the past that uh, when the opioid crisis really started uh, showing the bigger and growing numbers, and we've certainly seen that through the pandemic as well. Uh, how is it for paramedics dealing with more than, than one crisis, more than the pandemic, dealing with an ongoing opioid crisis as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair point to bring up. It's almost as though we're dealing with double crises. And um, 
and that is a that is a, a tremendous load on everybody. And I think that physically, it's physically demanding. All of these calls are, and then it's very mentally draining. Every, every call represents a potential infection, no matter where the call is or where it originates from. And that level of uh, vigilance uh, can can really have an effect after a time. And again. Um, Although paramedics are, are getting tired and, and um, you know, the work is enormous, they are being vigilant and, uh, and I, you know, the results of the study will, will help better understand that. Has it changed as well? I think we've seen in other workplaces uh, camaraderie or bringing together of people, maybe in ways we haven't seen before. I'm guessing that already exists when it comes to paramedics, but has that uh, been heightened because of this? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, paramedics traditionally work uh, in very small cohorts of, of other paramedics. Uh, they work alongside firefighters um, and caring for each other's health and wellness and safety is, is always so, so important. Uh, and now that's become even more pertinent. And especially as we carry patients from these sort of chaotic and uncontrolled places and bring them into the emergency department as we do, there's now the, the added element of really ensuring that when we cross that door into the emergency department, that we're equally caring for the, the, the rest of the healthcare workers that will come in contact with that patient. So I think it's really highlighted uh, the number of people that come in contact with patients and the, the importance that paramedics place on uh, taking care of everybody around them in that scene. And Dr. Grinnell, I'll go back to you. We've only got a couple of minutes left, uh, but you mentioned the surveys and what's going to be done as far as getting this information. Uh, do you need more paramedics to, to sign up and be part of the study or where do things go from here? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We just recently launched the study. So we're hoping to have 5,000 paramedic participants between BC and Ontario. Um, we've only just recently launched. We have about 800 uh, participants who've signed up so far, uh, but we're interested in having many more people participate. All right. Well, thanks so much to both of you for joining us today to talk more about this. Uh, I look forward to learning more about the results and about this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Look forward to yeah, Thank you very much. All right. Have you ever wondered, I'm taking this medication and this medication and you've kind of lost track on whether or not they're okay or what time, when you're supposed to take it? Well, fear not because an Okanagan healthcare company has developed a very modern medication type dispenser. And joining me to talk about that is Shane Bishop, the CEO of Catalyst Healthcare. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. What exactly uh, does this uh, computer-controlled machine do? So Spencer is actually a connected care hub that sits on your countertop in your home. And so it has an actual touchscreen on the front of it, and it is connected live to your community pharmacy. So the pharmacy feeds prescription data up to the cloud and down to the device, and then the device itself beeps and whistles and flashes and reminds you when to take your medication, you touch the screen and out comes the post of medication for that uh, dosing time. Which sounds great for anybody, again, that's ever been in the scenario where you just can't remember or maybe it's slipped your mind or you're not 100% sure that what you're taking can go with everything, uh, that there's not going to be a negative side effect. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a lot of individuals 
around that have complex regimens of medications and just, you know, the relief and the decrease in burden of remembering to take those medications and taking them together at the right time to minimize some of those side effects, um, you know, and to keep people healthy at home and really living stress-free. And does it count then on pharmacies buying into this or how do you make sure that everything is connected? Yeah, you know, we're very excited to to work with community pharmacies. I'm, I'm a pharmacist myself. And, um, you know, we've really been dedicated to the concept of medication adherence and making sure everyone's able to take their meds at the right time. And pharmacy in general is really starting to buy in to these concepts. Um, the world has changed a little bit, of course, with COVID and the idea of remote patient monitoring, looking at data, engaging patients at home is really at the forefront of pharmacy care now. Is that what kind of prompted you to get involved in this, in what you were seeing as a pharmacist? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was lucky, lucky enough to be one of the first pharmacies in North America to adopt a specialty packaging for patients, um, which was an easier to open and to coordinate uh, packaging system for medications. And once I did that about 15 years ago, I, it just really struck me that this is a, a, a space that I want to play in and, and try to, you know, fix all of these issues. And it's been, a, it's been an amazing journey. Could it be something as well then uh, that somebody maybe that has a caregiver that comes in uh, or maybe even has multiple caregivers, if the caregivers are all making sure to enter the information into Spencer and doing that, uh, it could kind of put more checks and balances in place as far as making sure that the the person on the medication is getting the right doses at the right times? Absolutely. We are starting to work with a number of home care agencies across uh, North America, in fact. Um, where they are responsible for delivering medication, you know, within someone's home. And it definitely makes it easier for everybody involved. And you get proper documentation. And even these home care agencies have a dashboard with all their patients and they can see what's happening in the patient home. In case they're not able to get into the home, they can still take care of their patients. Uh, Now, some people might hear about this and uh, hear about the cloud and how it's connected and such and have privacy concerns. So how do you ensure uh, that medical information is kept private? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to, first off, the licensing agreement that a patient has to enter into um, where they're able to share their information with their pharmacy and likely their physician as well. So we like to provide all caregivers in the circle of care the, the information, but we absolutely work with the most secure systems available in the market today for, for full patient uh, um, you know, data um, um, safety. Uh, is there any, uh, are there any kind of uh, restrictions in that? Can there be a maximum amount or number of medications that somebody is on that, uh, that they can only have so many or, or is it unlimited? It is actually unlimited. So, and, and we do find, you know, patients with seven, eight plus different medications usually start to find, um, you know, life is a little bit chaotic. You're spending a lot of your day trying to manage your, your multiple medications at multiple dosing times. And uh, this really does, you know, relieve the burden in that area. So six, seven, eight plus medications for sure. But um, no, it's, it's not uncommon to have patients with 20 different medications these days for sure. Uh, so what does it cost for somebody that is interested in this? So in the province of British Columbia, depending on how many medications you're taking, um, it could be fully offset by your pharmacy if they're able to absorb it as a service they provide with their prescription fees. Um, but that said, you know, some patients pay anywhere from 19 to $29 per month for the actual device and service that goes along with it.
<laughs> and how have people uh, been reacting to it or, or what kind of uh, participation have you had? Oh, absolutely amazing. Every day we get testimonials coming in from patients that are just, you know, swearing by how it's changed and impacted their life. So as, as a pharmacist, seeing this every day has, has been quite moving. Um, so we, you know, on our website, we have uh, access, uh, people have access to all these testimonials and it, it is amazing. And is that the, I'm just, in case people are wondering where they can learn more about this, is that the meetspencertoday.com or where's the best place? Yeah, meetspencertoday.com or catalysthealthcare.com is the other website. And that's our main website, actually, where you can see all of our products and solutions related to adherence. All right. Well, I know it's uh, definitely helped out a lot of people with multiple medications. Shane Bishop, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, you heard earlier today Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that Canada has signed a tentative agreement for Novavax to produce millions of doses of a COVID-19 vaccine right here in Canada once it is approved for use. We also heard from Canada's industry minister earlier today saying the company is months away from actually pumping out vaccines, many months away, well beyond the government's September timeline of getting everyone in Canada who wants the shot inoculated. So we expect by the end of the year um, uh, to be in a position uh, to be producing vaccines. And we're talking around 2 million doses a month. Novavax is a U.S.-based company. It is still doing clinical trials of the vaccine. That was the announcement on Novavax as well as another company in Canada uh, talking about getting uh, a facility built and up and running by 2023. So positive news, but a lot of people wondering why did it take so long to get the ball rolling when it comes to vaccine produced here in Canada? Let's bring in Dr. Horatio Bach, who is an adjunct professor with the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for the invitation. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about the announcement today uh, about domestic making a vaccine. The Prime Minister talking about a deal being struck with Novavax uh, as well as another company. What is your response to that? Um, I think it's, it's a great and fantastic because finally uh, having that producing, you know, in Canada, it's, it don't depend on the uh, international supply that we we are, we are uh, getting issues now because the supplies from Pfizer and Moderna they are not what we expected, and uh, having that here is better. Also, uh, the uh, European Union also passed a bill that uh, any vaccine that is producing. In, in the European community is not going to leave uh, that place if someone needs in their uh, countries. means that our vaccine that we get, uh, sorry, vaccine, our vaccine from Pfizer we get from Belgium. So if they need, you know, in uh, this country, that 27 countries, they need vaccine, it's going to be for them before it's shipped to, uh, to Canada. So we may face another delay on top of that. Uh, there has been some criticism, as to be expected, in that even though these deals have been signed, it's going to be several months. It's not going to be at least till the end of the year before we see the Novavax vaccine production. Uh, Precision Nanosystems, the other one on track, that wouldn't be happening, though, until 2023. Is this something we should have been doing at the beginning of the pandemic or even before in anticipation of a pandemic? Well, 
as I say, sometimes we are more intelligent after the, the what's happening. Uh, definitely, um, we have a couple of companies uh, that they are doing a, producing vaccine in Canada, but not using the technology from Pfizer or uh, Moderna. But definitely, it should be a, um, an institution or organization that is producing this vaccine uh, in Canada. Now we understand that um, in Vido, that is the vaccine research in, in Saskatchewan, they are building a, a plant for production of vaccines. And also uh, we will have for a Novavax, apparently is the NRC, the National Research uh, Council that is building also, I think in, in Quebec, they are building another facility that should be in July ready for production. But, you know, we take extra time because you never know what is the final date. And definitely though these people will get the license from Novavax to produce the vaccine here in Canada. You, you, you know, that was a big uh, global emergency that uh, uh, caught us very uh, in a very bad position. But definitely having, uh, you know, in Canada, that's the best we can do at this point. Uh, the best we can do. And at the same time, though, as you mentioned, we're still at the whim of these companies that we've signed deals with the European companies. And there are a lot of concerns about the delays and about officials here uh, kind of changing the timeline as uh, to when that, that time in between people getting those first and second doses. That That's the main point. You know, they say they will send and the week after they say, oh, sorry, we don't have you have to wait another week and this another week. And now they say for three weeks we don't get you know, and I understand that they, they have a maximal capacity to produce vaccines per day, and the demand is so high that they can't. Now my understanding, they are problem to find the vials also that where you put the vaccine inside. So it's a chain supply that apparently is not working properly. And, you know, probably the company didn't know they will have such amount of, uh, uh, you know, uh, units to produce. That's the reason they expand, for example, Pfizer in in Belgium. So it's something that, you know, we were not prepared. And definitely what is happening with Moderna and Pfizer are two companies that you have to be very careful what they say. They promise, they promise, you know, but promises are promises. And we need to see the vaccine vaccines coming here. And again, what you say about the first and second dose is a big issue now because those people, they got the first dose and they're waiting for the second dose. When they will get that, that's another question. And how concerned do you think we should be? And I know uh, Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, spoke about this earlier today, about the spread of the COVID-19 variants, which in some cases do appear uh, to be uh, much more contagious. How concerned should we be about that while we do wait for the vaccine to roll out? Uh, well, again, uh, it's, it's just control, you know, uh, continue with the guidelines. I understand now the flights from outside of Canada will be very strict and needs to be in quarantine. As I think they are adopting the model from Australia. They are very, very tough. And, and that's the only way that you can stop, you know, because you are importing all the time. The good stuff with the Novavax, sorry, I'm jumping a little, they found that the, the, the vaccine is very successful uh, 89% efficacy to control the UK variants and 60% of the South African variant. So the South African variant right now is the most uh, um, dangerous, if we can say, because it's something that the, the regular vaccine they were developed, they, they don't work properly. And even Novavax is 60%. Still, you know, we consider good uh, 60% or 70%, but it's not enough. 
and where they are claiming they are they are starting probably to prepare kind of a vaccine that is called bivalent means that in the same shot you have one um, the the for the original virus and for the South African virus so that will be like a two vaccine in one as we have for other type of vaccines that we use here in uh, you know human papilloma virus or flu vaccine. Right. And at the same time as well, we're also hearing uh, because of the delays uh, in some other provinces, likely here in B.C. as well, there are going to be delays in getting all of the vaccine uh, to the most vulnerable, getting them to long term care uh, facilities. So what do you think about that, that the very first part of the rollout, we're now seeing delays? Uh, well, my understanding is that uh, here in BC, the, all the workers in the health long-term uh, uh, facility, they were offered the vaccine. Um, probably, uh, uh, you know, there is a group, I'm sure, that they are still with the first dose and they're waiting for the second dose. And, you know, that's a problem. And we cannot blame Canada, we cannot blame anyone. It's just a supply from the company because... Once we get the vaccine in Canada, it's distributed, so it's something from the supply. That's the reason we have to be very careful with these promises they make all the time because you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Maybe some issues in the factory, uh, uh, something that is broken, and then they oh, sorry, we have an issue now, so we, you have to wait two more months, you know. So that's the reason for me it's more important to cover the two doses from people rather to, to give one dose for more people and wait for the second dose that you may not know when it will come. All right. Uh, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there for today. Always good to, to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe. Well, time to take a look at what is happening with the Delta Hospice Society. We have talked about this on the show many times. It's been talked about on other shows on this station. And the mayor of Delta has now written a letter about what the next steps could and should be. And Mayor George Harvey joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on again. Thank you. Where do things stand as far as the eviction taking place, the date being later this month, and the taking over of this facility? Well, I can assure you that uh, I've had many conversations uh, with Fraser Health and Minister Dix and our Minister uh, Ravi Kellen from North Delta, who's assisting us on this, and in Peyton, our MLA from Delta South. We've all been working together. Uh, but we're waiting for that timeline to end, which is, I think, around February 22nd. And my understanding on the process is then Fraser Health is serving a notice to vacate both buildings on the site. And that's where we stepped in, where I had the uh, support from my city council for us to send a letter stating that the city of Delta, at the appropriate time, would like to have discussions regarding taking over the lease for the supportive building, where the supportive services are being offered now. That way, we can guarantee that we're not going to go back into a turmoil like this, and we can ensure that there's uh, total cooperation and total following Fraser Health's direction and have the community move on and ensure the hospice stays what it should be, very quiet, doing just tremendous work for our community. Uh, so would the city of Delta then become kind of the landlord? Actually, the landlord will be Fraser Health, but we would take a lease. We're, ask, we're asking uh, for a conversation where we would take over the lease and that would be for the Supported Services Building, the Veronica, Harold and Veronica Savage Centre for Supported Care Building. It's a separate building from the hospice side, but on the same property. It's all one It's all one family there. And so it's very important that they're working in cooperation with each other and not in conflict like it is now. And so we would be, we would take the lease and then we would sublease it out 
uh, to a society. We hope it's, we can make it work for the, the Delta Hospice Society with a new board. That way we can get back to great the great you know, functionality that we had before all this turmoil and mess was started. Do you think that if this happened then, would this be kind of a seamless way to keep the society going and and still be allowing medical assistance in dying, which has been really at the, at the heart of this issue? Or would there still be some disruption? Uh, well, the, unfortunately, uh, the current board has caused a disruption now. We've lost our services there, which is just shameful. Very sad for our community. You know, someone who's had a loved one in there, uh, you know, it's, it's not having that. It's what we worked so many so many years for and, and raised so much so much funding to, in order that we could have our people on their last days, uh, they, you know, being in a facility such as our own hospice. So we would have to start it up again, and that, of course, would be Fraser Health. Um, but my goal would be to have the city um, discussions and hopefully successful with Fraser Health take over that lease and then sublease it out and so that the city does have control. Um, Jill, we, we lease out a lot of our buildings uh, to various community services groups. And we, you know, something actually a lot of people think thought the city had the lease on it anyways. Um, but I think this could really work in our model, having local government involved and ensuring that our community doesn't go through this again. How do you ensure that? Because I know a lot of people, uh, even that are very close to this, are looking at how this has unfolded and the turmoil that has been caused by the current board and saying, okay, A, how did this happen? And how do you stop this from happening again? Well, it'd be really a lot better than it is now because Fraser Health would have the autonomy of operating the actual hospice building. So that this building would be separate in uh, offering uh, programs that are supportive uh, to the hospice, uh, but it'd be a separate function. Part of the lease would state that they have to follow all all guidelines and procedures and follow the program requirements of Fraser Health. But that would be under the city, and so it would be separate, and we could make this work very well. And have you, so you've written this letter and uh, the letter addressed to the Fraser Health uh, Board Chair. Um, do you have to wait then and get response, or are we waiting till the end of February to kind of see how things unfold uh, with, uh, with the eviction and with what happens next? No, we've had really good working relationships through my office with uh, Jim Sinclair, and the, uh, the chair, and Dr. Victoria Lee. And we talked to her regularly about this subject and also COVID, which I'm so impressed with the work that they're doing. But they've already written me back. And what they're saying is that they would ensure when the time is right that they would engage in consultation on the supportive services currently offered and how they will be maintained in the future. So that's all we asked for, in, which was my letter, is at the right time is the opportunity to discuss uh, the option for the City of Delta to lease the Harold and Veronica Savage Centre for supportive care. So we're in a holding pattern now, but I'm very impressed that uh, Fraser Health is staying course and there is going to be, my, I see, a vacancy very an order for vacancy very soon. And I would just impress upon the current board operated by Angela Ireland to do the right thing. And now that all this is happening, uh, the action has been taken, do the right thing for our community, your community members, step down and let's get on ensuring that the hospice goes back to the, the proper way that it was operating before. Do you get the sense that volunteers will return? Because I know there are many people who spent many years volunteering there who right now are staying away. Uh, they aren't welcome either and have said they're not interested in being part of this as it is now. Is it your hope that uh, people who have been such advocates and parts of this will return? Well, Jill, the secret to any community uh, that is strong and resilient is its volunteers. And this is why we brought making this offer so that we can, you know, retain the existing staff in that area 
and also the many volunteers of the supportive care center. Uh, they're the ones that have made hosp- there are hospitals that are you know, like a center of excellence in this community, and we need to ensure that those volunteers stay and provide those services to our community. They're so, so vital. All right, uh, Mayor Harvey, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, and take care and be 